Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket with me, Simon Mann and Simon Hughes. In this edition, we're going to be talking about the future of the game, the viability of Test Cricket, the power of T20 and we're going to get the inside story of how to set up an Indian Premier League franchise and how to run it. Simon's new book covers that, a new innings. It's just been published and the book is partly a detailed analysis of the business of cricket and sport in general. It's partly a how-to manual for setting up a T20 team. It's co-authored with Manoj Badali, who in 2008 formed a consortium to buy the Rajasthan Royals franchise in the newly formed Indian Premier League. The Royals were huge undertogs, but under the captaincy of Shane Warne, they created a major upset by winning that first tournament. They're about to begin their 12th season in the competition in the UAE, with many England stars in their squad. They've not won it since 2008, that first tournament. The book also examines how cricket and sport will have to adapt following the potentially devastating impact of COVID-19. I started by asking Manoj who the book is aimed at. Well, it's um, actually it's been a somewhat of a joke within the, uh, within the families because it's been such a multi-year project. And actually, originally, uh, the book started out as a way of just chronicling the uh, the extraordinary roller coaster that was the the IPL and the Rajasthan Royals in the first few years. I think the first edition was actually called um, you uh, you couldn't script it. Um, and then when we uh, when we got terminated and then suspended, it felt like there was a lot that we were learning about the business of India. I think we called that version fast and at times unplayable. And then when Simon and I got together a couple of years ago to sort of review the the material that I'd amassed over the years. We, um, we felt that actually the thing that was really missing was a book that uh, unpacked the business of cricket and to some extent the business of sport because the IPL has been such an extraordinary uh, business success uh, in so many ways. 
How difficult was it to write to sort of get everything down? You know, 12 years, ups and downs. You mentioned the the downs, and there have been downs as well. You were suspended from the, the IPL, but because you won the first IPL. Yeah, no, look, actually a few people that read uh, sort of early manuscripts said there are four or five books here. So, um, you know, it's always getting that balance of, uh, of some of the uh, slightly more humorous stories combined with hopefully what we try and do is uh, is actually teach the reader uh, something about the business of sport. And I think one of the things that's, um, that's, that's interesting around, about coronavirus is how uh, sports fans have had to take much more of an interest in the business of sport. So I think focusing has helped uh, synthesise the book in the way that we have. What are the book's main conclusions? Uh, well, Simon can pick a few up, um, but I think we try, uh, we try and address... Uh, a number of themes. One is uh, where we start is actually how do you go about designing sports leagues? Um, one of the extraordinary successes of the IPL has been how compelling it's been as a broadcast format and an awful lot of that um, goes to the way the tournament was designed. I, I've always believed the essence of sport is unpredictable outcomes and that's something that the design of the tournament has ensured uh, happens with the IPL. We then we, we, we talk in the book a lot about the impact of private ownership and the importance of that in terms of bringing new capital and risk capital uh, because new tournaments require risk capital uh, to, to experiment, to innovate. We talk a lot about regulators. Um, and again, that to some people may not seem like the sexiest of topics, but we're learning through coronavirus just how important it is, how countries are governed. Um, I think sports fans are beginning to realise how important it is, how sports are governed. And so we touch on that. We touch on how you maximise the value uh, within a sports franchise and within a sports tournament. And then we try and chart a little bit uh, of a set of predictions about how the future is going to unfold for the game. Well, Simon, let, let's look at the, the future you know, at the start of this uh, discussion. Uh, what, do, what do you see as the, as the future for cricket in in the UK, for example, Test cricket is is hugely popular. The the attendances for for Test cricket are good, but they seem to be diminishing in in other parts of the world. And it, you know, does it feel sometimes like T Twenty versus Test cricket, or can the two um, exist comfortably together? I think it depends in what country you are, actually. Um, I, I think the great thing about the the, the future and T Twenty is it's expanded the game it's globalized the game because resources are needed to run a test match team you know to have a successful test match team requires a good first class structure it requires a lot of players it requires quite a lot of grounds and obviously a lot of money uh, whereas to run a t20 team or a t20 league doesn't require quite as many resources and there are so many countries now trying to play the t20 format who would never contemplate playing test cricket because you know it's just impossible for a you know a Nepal or a, an Ireland even to, to probably run a successful test match team but there's no reason why they can't play T20 and I think my argument is that cricket is a very adaptable sport it's one of the reasons why it survived so long from the 1700s onwards it's always had different formats you know if you think back to the early days it was played there were four ball overs and eight ball overs and 
double wickets and single wickets. And, you know, there's all sorts of different ways of playing the game. One, a very successful format of the game is last man stands in the world, which is eight aside, 16 overs, last man can bat on his own. So, you know, it, it is an incredibly adaptable type of sport. And test cricket is the ultimate. It's the pinnacle. And all the great players want to play in it. And, you know, the countries that can still sustain test cricket will keep continue to do so. But it doesn't mean that uh, it, it, that other countries can't play other formats and be equally important. So I think the two or different three, three, two or three formats can survive together. And, you know, it's up to each individual country to find what best suits them. But, you know, what I love about T20 and what I love about the IPL and, you know, all those sort of domestic tournaments that have, have evolved is that it's given, it gives cricket to cricketers and spectators at a time when they can play and watch, which is in the evening, uh, during the week maybe, or even at weekends. I played in 20-over cricket when I was a kid, playing for Ealing Cricket Club, and it was a great form of the game, uh, both for Colts and for you know seniors. And, you know, the, the IPL and other T20 uh, forms of the game have made it expand and have given more people the opportunity. And I just want to use this book and you know the connections with the with the IPL and the Royals to really prove that it's a great format of the game. I do think we need to be a bit careful about how we describe test cricket as the pinnacle of the game. I mean it's 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 my favorite format of the game as a spectator and we tend to describe things as great because it's what players and commentators enjoy the most. And fundamentally Cricket is no different to any other sport in the sense that it's owned by the fans. It exists because of the fans and because of the grassroots participants. And actually, the reality is the behaviours and the needs of both fans and indeed of grassroots players who are more time scarce, who want more bite-sized experiences, are changing. So if Test Cricket is going to survive, which I believe it can to Simon's point, particularly in certain parts of the world, it is going to have to reconfigure. What does that reconfiguring look like? I think at a minimum, the whole debate about four days versus five days is, is, is pretty spurious, actually. I mean, if you, look at, um, if you look at England's last 75 test matches, um, less than a third have actually gone to the fifth day. Uh, and the vast majority of those involved, it was weather that got those games to the fifth day. And simply by creating a four-day format creates much more flex on the overall cricket calendar. Uh, I think we've got to look at the overrates within test matches. Uh, we've got to look at the time of day um, to, 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 for them to continue to appeal to people who don't have the sort of middle-class luxury of taking a day off and uh, having a packed picnic during the week. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that have to change about Test cricket. And to to, to Yoz's point, um, fundamentally, I think there are too many Test-playing nations um, and we've got to recognise that it is a sport that can be played by a much smaller number of uh, Test-playing uh, cricketing nations um, and it needs to occupy a fixed but scarce, uh, increasingly kind of scarce, uh, part of the calendar. So few... Fewer test matches, but bigger events. Um, ultimately, you know, the ability to stage these things, broadcast these things, 
fund these things and put them on requires uh, media rights and it requires uh, media income. Uh, and and we, we have to be careful that we don't create a world where the only reason test matches survive is because the economics are sub- cross-subsidised from other formats of the game. We have to we have to set our stall out to make test cricket a financially viable standalone product. And I believe we can. But if you look at the Olympics, the Olympics happens once every four years. And yet it's one of the most valuable sports rights um, in the world. If you look at Wimbledon, it's a two-week tournament that has real scarcity value that people look forward to. They know when it's going to happen. They plan nine months in advance. That's what England-Australia test series should be like. That's what England-South Africa test series should be like. That's what India-England test series should be like. So there's a real opportunity by actually reducing the amount of test cricket to actually increase the economic value of test cricket. And actually that backs up with also with uh, golf, uh, you know, four major tournaments and tennis, you know, four majors in tennis as well. So, you know, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think there needs to be windows, and, and Manos will back this up, there needs to be windows for international cricket and windows for domestic tournaments. And also there needs to be a, a way of connecting all those domestic tournaments together with a, uh, an international, a, a global T20 tournament, a bit like the Champions League in football. Uh, and that integrates all these countries. It means that, you know, the champions of Nepal, for instance, they're... Premier League, which interestingly is called the the EPL, the Everest Premier League, uh, it, you know, it, it, that a, a champion of that could play against a Mumbai Indians or a, a Birmingham Bears or whoever, you know, and create that sort of great integration of of the world game. And Test cricket can still survive alongside that. And you know, I just heard this week actually the MCC very keen still to stage the final of the World Test Championship in June next year. That is likely to still go ahead. And all the countries uh, in the you know the top eight uh, of the test playing countries are all really engaged in trying to find ways to play even in this unreal you know new normal environment. They're all wanting to play test cricket to try and make sure that so- those that the two teams get to that final at Lords, which are, which will be a, a really big you know feature, a big um, prize to to focus on for for the next few months. Let me pick up on something that, that Manoj said, though. He said that, that Test cricket is propelled, if you like, by the, the current players who describe it as the pinnacle of the game and the media who describe it as the pinnacle of the game. But in 20 years' time, 25 years' time, as T20 cricket and competitions like the IPL have become more and more prominent, those players won't see Test cricket like that. And the, the people in the media, commentators they won't see it like that either because T20 cricket will have taken over. Is, is, is that how you see it? You talk about a, a new innings here. Is that how you see it, that actually there will be a, a seismic shift as time goes on in the next 20 or 30 years? I mean, look, I think, I mean, there's seismic shifts uh, in every industry. There's seismic shifts in every aspect of how we live. Uh, we've seen more seismic shifts digitally in the last six months than we've probably seen in the preceding six years. So the notion that consumer change, consumer tastes change, um, it's, it's something that actually is just a reality of life. So I think the question is less for me, um, will test cricket be there 
um, and more what do we need to do with test cricket to give it a chance of being there. Uh, the economics of an industry and the economics of a sport rarely, uh, you know, rarely lie. I mean, the economics wins in the long term. And when you look at the cricket economy, a $2 billion economy, um, 33% now comes from the IPL. Uh, another 47% comes from matches played against India. Of that 47%, 80% of that is driven by ODIs that are played against India. So the point is that test cricket is already a tiny part of the cricket economy. It's a decreasing part of the live cricket uh, audiences. So we're at, a, we're at a point where the seismic shift has got to happen. Otherwise, uh, it'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy. But I would say that, you know, just to, to add to that, I'd say that, you know, T20 has really enhanced the test match product by, you know, if you think back to that amazing innings of Ben Stokes last summer at Headingley, uh, which I know, Simon, you commented on. And, you know, that was a that married, you know, old fashioned test match technique of accumulation with incredible expansion and repertoire and audacity at the end of that innings. Uh, so it really married, you know, test match skills and T20 skills. And, you know, added to that, I think the, the impact of the IPL, and we talk about this a lot in the book, is that it's increased its uh, the cricket's awareness to so many different communities. And I'm particularly thinking of women, actually. You know, now 40% of the viewers of the IPL are women. And, you know, we've kind of neglected, I think, for the last, you know, X number of years... Uh, cricket for women uh, to try and get them more involved obviously women the women's game is is expanding and so on but you know to make the game uh, attractive to women as well uh, is something that we've kind of ignored I think and the IPL has done that brilliantly by bringing in you know things like music and dance and celebrities and film stars as well as brilliant skillful players and so it's made the whole product much more attractive to everybody in the community. And that, that, that those people who started out watching maybe the IPL or T20 will gradually progress to test cricket because they'll hear about these great players like Ben Stokes or Jofra Archer or MS Dhoni or Virat Kohli. You know, they'll want to watch those players in a test match having first sampled them in, in T20. Who is this book aimed at? Who's your target audience? Who are you hoping... Uh, reads it and and takes on board uh, some of the the ideas contained in it. Uh, this is a great it's a great yeah, question. It's a great question. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> I, think, question. Uh, I should let Yozza really comment. I mean, as someone who's never written a book before, um, that's a question quite a few people have asked. And I and I suspect, um, if I'm truthful, the, the 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 motivation originally for me at least was very much to get the story of the IPL and the story of the Rajasthan Royals chronicled in a factual way um, because I think there are so many interesting stories and interesting learnings, not just for the business of cricket, but for the business of sport. So um, that probably means, first and foremost, for me, it's about cricket fans. Um, second, it's probably, a, uh, it'd be fantastic if cricket administrators and sports administrators looked at this and said, hang about there's something we could learn from this whether it's for cricket whether it's for rugby whether it's for soccer um but um you know simon's a fantastic uh, uh writer uh, and so i think uh, you know he's added um you know added a 
colour to it that, that makes it readable by people who uh, simply want to learn about sport and learn about cricket. Basically, of course, I was just desperate to write another book, really. Um, but that, that's a, a facetious answer. I mean, really, I, I care about cricket so much. And, you know, hopefully that comes over in all the things that, you know, Simon, you and I do, like podcasts and so on. Uh, just trying to get people more uh, insight into how the game operates. I mean, and we've tried to do in this book uh, a little bit about the way that players have improved, the fact that the IPL is a sort of cricketing brainstorm that you know it's a gathering of all these brilliant players and coaches and people like Manoj have brought new ideas to the running of a team and I suppose from spending you know most of my life around domestic cricket county cricket and obviously international cricket I've seen a lot of mistakes made and a lot of kind of fairly poor practice gone on behind the scenes it's frustrated me the way that the game has been run at times uh, at all levels, really. And and so what we've tried to do with this book is, is give a few sort of pointers, ideas, suggestions for how to run the game more efficiently. And I think, you know, Manoj has, is a very sort of stimulating person to be around. He, he cares passionately about cricket, but he also sees that it's got to sustain itself. And, and so he's always thinking about those sort of ideas, how the game can be more sustainable. It's an expensive game to stage. You know, the players are now more expensive. Grounds, huge spaces, big areas of real estate have to be paid for. Uh, you know, it, it's a long game. So, you know, you need a lot of kind of um, staff to, to look after it. But it's so rewarding in the end. So, you know, I suppose what we're trying to get over in this book is, is how to make the game survive from a financial point of view as well as from a playing point of view. Let me just briefly interrupt this conversation to say that we're talking about uh, my new book with Manoj Badali, A New Innings, the way that the reinvention of cricket through T20 has shaped the business of sport. And actually we've created, as well as a, a website, anewinnings.com, which is where you can buy the book at a cut price. It is available on Amazon, but you can buy it at a reduced price at www.anewinnings.com. Also on that website, if you click on Join the Discussion, there is a huge platform there uh, attempting to engage you all with the future of the game in lots of different uh, facets. Uh, there's things about organising leagues, there's things about marketing the game, digital distribution, player management, biosecure environments, playing in a bio bubble, uh, many other topics, uh, how the analysis has really improved the playing standards of the game and also a lot about innovation and how cricket is the most innovative sport in the world and uh, it really that's important for the game to survive and continue to flourish is by continuing to be innovative. So go to www.anewinnings.com to have a look at the options to buy the book and also that free site. When you bought the Rajasthan Royals franchise with a, a consortium uh, back in, in 2008, did you do it with trepidation, Manoj? Did you do it with excitement? Did, was it just a sort of, you know, a, a shot in the dark? What, what, what did you expect to happen? What were you hoping would happen? It's very easy to be sort of clever with hindsight. I mean, the truth is we'd actually been experimenting with innovations in the game through a business entity called Investors in Cricket uh, for two or three years before the IPL. We, we acquired the commercial rights for Leicestershire County Cricket Club. We had a television show in India called Cricket Star, which was like a cheap sort of pop idol for cricketers. 
Um, we even created actually and, and staged the first ever Champions League tournament between T20 teams from around the world, all of which were fantastically interesting but spectacularly uh, unsuccessful. And that was um, and that was primarily because one of the things you learn quickly in sport, and perhaps we were a bit slow getting there, is it's all about the value of the meteorites. And so unless you can um, find a way to create valuable media rights, it's very hard to create a strong economic footing uh, for either your franchise or for your league. And so what attracted me to the IPL in particular was the sharing of the media rights between the league and the teams. Um, and in that first year, it was pretty much a 50-50 split. Um, and so I remember explaining to uh, a couple of my partners uh, why I thought this was a good investment. And, I, and actually the line I used um, was, we're not buying a sports franchise, uh, we're buying 7% of the IPL. Uh, and I think the IPL has all the uh, ingredients to be successful. But clearly, we had no idea it was going to take off to the uh, extent that it did. What was your hunch at the time? I mean, I mean, did it feel like a gamble or did it feel like, you know, a reasonably solid investment? It, it, it definitely wasn't a hunch. It felt like a very solid investment in the sense that there were, you know, we learned enough about sport to know what we had to look for. And the first was obviously the size of the market. And, um, you know, India uh, had just won the Cricket World Cup, to the very first Cricket World Cup T20. So the country was gripped by T20, having actually never played T20 prior to that World Cup or, you know, literally played one or two games. So, uh, so we knew there was a market demand and we knew it was a massive market. But the two things that really stood out were, one, the share of the media rights, but second, and this is something that is still a challenge for so many sports leagues and sports around the world, is there was a robust framework for maintaining the salary caps. So we had salary caps and have always had salary caps in the IPL. But even as important as having a salary cap, as we've seen in rugby, by the way, is having a transparent procurement process. Uh, and so the auction meant that there was no way of cheating the salary cap. So we had a salary cap that, was, um, that, was, that could be policed, which meant that the cost structure was under control and the revenues would ultimately be driven by the number of Indian eyeballs. And we, and we had a hunch that there'd be lots. There's finance and then there's glory. And in the first year, you had a, everyone said, oh, Rajasthan Royals, they've got a rubbish team. And you won the whole thing. I mean, how on earth did you manage it? I think when people wrote us off that first year, um, they did so on the basis of a few misguided assumptions. One was that um, you know Shane Warne had been in retirement and we made a big bet on him as not just the captain, but actually I'd got to know him before the tournament started. Uh, and in my mind, he clearly had a point to prove because he'd never really had a chance to captain Australia uh, in the way that he'd hoped. Um, so we made a big bet on him as captain and coach and that, that, that paid off um, incredibly. Uh, we also, uh, and, si and you, you know, Yoza will remember this because I remember uh, Yoza sitting in, a, in our uh, garden in Chiswick talking about the player selection. We, uh, you know, we tapped into uh, cricket expertise to think about the structure of the team. But we also deployed a, a little bit of rudimentary back then, what was relatively rudimentary, technology and data because that's that's the business I, I live and breathe and work in 
Um, and I've always thought that the, whether it's the media or the commentators or the coaches, the lack of science that was being applied to player selection back in, certainly back in 2008, uh, was pretty basic. And I'd read a book uh, by Michael Lewis on the famous, now famous Billy Bean, and was inspired by that to apply some of that. And that paid off with players like Sahel Tanvir and Shane Watson, who were not household names, who made a huge impact in that tournament. Um, I think the rest of it was was down to, um, again, because we were cheap and because we were unknown, we didn't get distracted by a lot of the Bollywood off the field. We just kept the environment very, very focused on the cricket. That said, someone will quickly point out, we won it in the first year and we haven't won it since, so we're not that smart. We've got a lot of work to do. I mean, I got involved, obviously, as Manos says there, I got involved a little bit uh, on the, the outset of the tournament. And... In fact, I was involved with that cricket style program as well before that, that we tried to do in India. And I mean, when I then kind of saw that the development of the first IPL, going to the first game, you know, having been, you know, tangentially involved with, with the building of the Rajasthan Royals uh, squad, then sort of wanting to see what actually happened. I went to the first game and I was one of the only English journalists out there and it was just compelling you know and I it, it made me think back to the excitement I felt as a player in say a cup final you know I played in a few Lords finals and the exhilaration you feel when you're doing something you love and you're in front of a massive crowd and there's a big trophy uh, uh, to to win at the end and you know the, the, the sort the whole hype of that and the buzz around the ground and the sort of the thrill of it was so amazing. And this was replicated in the, the first match of the IPL. You know, and then you thought, well, surely it can't sustain it. And it has. It's sustained it for 12 years. The, the, the passion of India is so infectious about this game. So, you know, I wanted to try and capture a bit of that, really, in this book as well. And the Royals have had their, their ups and downs. It's been a fascinating sort of roller coaster ride. But in the end, it, it's about the game. And the game is still incredibly exciting to watch um and keeps evolving and it's just been it's just been i'm so envious because you know i'd love to have played in in this form of the game because you know as as professional cricketers especially you, you want to play in front of a crowd it's been so weird hasn't it this summer watching you know completely uh, empty stadia at, at matches and it, it does take the gloss off playing the match um which an ipl game just totally expands to to the nth degree is it enjoyable or, or, or glamorous running an, an IPL franchise manager or is it you know a constant headache is it a constant worry is it is it hard work and is it, is it frustrating you know, what, what's the balance between those two uh, look it's a bit of all of those things and actually I've always said it's actually quite nice running an Indian IPL franchise from Chiswick uh, because um, you can sort of switch it off if you like um i think if 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 you live in india uh it's much more of a kind of constant demand um and it's much more visible so actually uh, being here is 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 sort of quite helpful um but look it's a privilege i mean first and foremost it's just uh you know i i, I knew simon when he played at middlesex um i was playing at stanmore at the time um and um you know for most of us we never attain uh, attain the the skills and the opportunities to play at that highest level, um, and so sports ownership is sort of for me it feels like the the second best um, 
opportunity. But it's it's a privilege. But it but it, you know what comes with the terrain is um, a, a high degree of visibility, a high degree of controversy uh, for a tournament like the IPL, which has grown so quickly and become so powerful within a country that's that's still evolving and maturing in terms of the way it runs itself and in terms of the way governance uh, is applied there more broadly. Um, so it's been, it's been incredible challenges, but I've also got a chance to see inside sport and see some of the really serious threats that pose um, the sport faces. We've been very focused on the COVID threat in the last six months, but, but actually probably the biggest threat for cricket is, um, you know, and for sport generally, is how it embraces the increasing power of the gambling uh, influence within sport. Because back to that essence of sport being unpredictable outcomes, the minute the authenticity of the game is challenged, we have much bigger problems than whether or not we should play Test cricket or T20. You do write about corruption in the book, uh, things like uh, spot fixing. Um, it's something that's affected the Royals as well. I mean, how clean is the IPL? I mean, are you concerned that the the perception of it in some quarters, even in India, which is you know, really bought into it, leads to doubts about its propriety? Yeah, I mean, look, 2013 was, uh, was probably the most existential crisis that the IPL faced when its veracity, its authenticity was, was challenged to the core. Um, but what I would say is that the investments made in the anti-corruption units that are now part of cricket... Uh, the security teams that are now part of cricket, the hotel monitoring that is now part of cricket uh, are more extreme in the IPL than even in international cricket. So um, I don't believe that this is an IPL-related threat. I believe this is a, an issue for the game. Uh, we need to continue to invest. The regulators, um, as in the governing bodies, uh, need to embrace and tackle this topic um, much more fundamentally than we are doing. We've got to work with industry uh, to deal with it because, you know, like most industries, the participants generally outsmart the regulators uh, if they're given a chance. So um, I'm not worried that the IPL is uh, any less clean than any other part of cricket, but I am worried that spot fixing and the influence of gambling will grow, actually particularly in the secondary and tertiary leagues because when you have players being paid poorly in bit part leagues that no one's watching it's much easier to be successful with a spot fix or to um, have the whole tournament sponsored by a gaming company so uh, and that's particularly post-covid where the game's finances are under stress and sports finances are under stress I think the whole of sport needs to look at how it embraces the gambling industry um, and ask itself whether it's doing it effectively uh, or not. I mean, I worry, even in soccer in this country, at the fact that 27 out of the 44 premiership uh, and championship football clubs um, are all sponsored by gaming companies. I mean, is that right? Is that what we want to be putting in front of our kids um, day in, day out? Is that what the social purpose of sport should really be about. Equally, it's an important part of the game, as Simon's written in several of his books, that we, we can't deny happens, but how we, uh, how we embrace it and how we deal with it is a really big question that we really just touch on in the book.
I think also there's an opportunity too uh, with the you know gambling and gaming, especially the gaming area. You know, I like the way that, for instance, uh, Dream Eleven is now the new sponsor of the IPL. Uh, that's partly by default because the previous sponsor, Vivo, had to pull out for for Chinese reasons. But the the Dream Eleven is an interesting concept because you basically pick eleven players from the the match that you're watching before it starts. Eleven of the twenty two. You select who's going to perform the best. And at the end of the game, you get points as a result of your selections and you go up a sort of ranking table and you can convert that into money. But essentially, it's, it's, it's allowed in India, which, which is where gambling is illegal, because it's regarded as a game of skill. And it is a game of skill. I mean, it's a game of luck as well, because, you know, it's lucky that when you pick David Warner, he happens to get a 50 on that particular day. But it does keep you interested. And I suppose... You know, if if money isn't the only reason why you're participating in this game, if it's also because you you fancy your chances of being able to predict uh, what might happen, you know, you you think that you might sort of read the game well and you know who's going to do well that particular day, and then you get recognition for that by going up the ranking table. So that so that's one sort of real opportunity for the game to kind of ally itself closer with that in the, in a similar way to I suppose when you go to a horse race, if you're not really avid horse racing fan by putting even a pound on a horse which you don't know much about that actually focuses your mind a, a bit more closely on, on how that horse performs I'm not saying that you know it's important to put money on the game but it's just it gets you another level of engagement let me just move on to to another aspect I think one of the one of the really interesting um, aspects of the book is that the English Premier League the English Football Premier League seems to defy some of Manoj's principles for a successful league, but it's clearly successful. I'm thinking, for example, it has relegation, which uh, Manoj suggests that you know for a successful league is is not a good thing, especially for franchise owners. It can be a it be fatal for a team. You know, if you get relegated, we've seen that in the, the in teams have been relegated from the English Premier League have struggled. They've had huge financial problems. They've dropped down leagues. Um, it doesn't have a player draft. Um, which evens out the distribution of players. It doesn't have a salary cap. Uh, so, and the IPL has those things, uh, and it has been very successful. Why is the English Premier League football being successful without some of the, the principles that have made the IPL very successful? I think um, uh, there's lots of parts to that. I mean, the first is we've got to be quite careful in terms of how we define success. So those principles that I allude to uh, in the book are very much in terms of what makes uh, a sports league and sports franchises investable. So if one of your objectives as a sports league is to bring in outside capital, uh, outside investment, private investment, such that you expand the dollars available to innovate, grow, market, then the principles that we talk about in the book are very, very important. And so if you bring that to, bring that to, to your question around soccer, I think the English Premier League is incredibly successful and it's incredibly uh, remunerative and value-creating for a relatively small subset of the English Premier League. So I think the players do extraordinarily well. Um, but, you know, is success when Arsenal are laying off and making redundancies across their staff this week at the same time that they're paying £45-plus million, £45 
for a player. Is that is that sort of level of sort of inequality um, something that as a society we think is successful business or responsible business or inclusive business? There's a lot of talk in my world about responsible capitalism um, and inclusive capitalism. Um, well, that doesn't that doesn't strike me as a, su- a successful, sustainable model where um, a small number of players get obscene amounts of money, uh, whereas we have to furlough uh, stewards, um, you know, in in tough times. So I think that definition. And similarly, when you look at the when you unpack the media rights um, and the quote success of the media rights of the English Premier League, eighty percent of the value in those rights is derived from less than 10% of the games in that league. And that's a big difference. In the IPL, every game attracts massive viewership because every game has an unpredictable outcome and it's a tournament that has proven every team has a chance of winning. At the start of every English Premier League, the debate's not about who's going to win the league. The debate is which one of maybe six, six or seven teams are going to win the league. And back to that relegation, I think actually some relegation you know, can, um, can be affected. But even, even now, we've, we've had to adjust parachute payments and transition payments because the step change in economics required to get from the Championship to the Premier League is so dramatic um, to make it even competitive. So, so I think you've got to go back to that definition of success. You've got to go back to... Um, what actually are the economics of the English Premier League? And when you say it's successful, I say it's successful for the few. So, Manoj, if the Rajasthan Royals didn't win the IPL for another 25 years, would, would your franchise still be successful? Yeah, no, I think, it, uh, you know, I think it comes back to the definition of success. I mean, I think for me, there are different components to that. One is um, your financial performance, one is your playing performance, uh, one is the level of innovation that you bring to the game, um, one is your social purpose. Uh, one of the things I've been very proud of with the Royals is the enormous emphasis we've placed And uh, it's successful for, you know, for, for some um, of the reasons being, being that you know, the, it's the sort of uh, owned by, I think, 19 of the 96 clubs or something are privately owned by often very wealthy individuals who bankrolled the game. Without them, so, the, the game um, would be completely stuffed and all of those already we're seeing of some success. clubs we may not collapsing have won because our owners have lost interest we are, I think, or you know, got gone bust or whatever. So as, you know, while the, the top of the game is, is pretty um, sort of profitable, there's a lot of uh, on a, a lot of flat going on under the, on underneath the surface uh, analysis of, of, of clubs that are really player struggling. value creation, i.e. the amount we pay for a player and then what happens to that player's value over a period of time. Uh, you know, we come top. Um, and I think we've made yeah. a huge impact to the lives of millions of people uh, in India with our social work and our highlighting of social causes. And this year, um, you know, our, uh, as, as important a focus for us as winning the tournament or competing in the tournament is the spotlight that we're shining on, uh, on women's periods, uh, which are an undiscussable across huge parts of South Asia. Our principal sponsor... Uh, is trying to change that um, and using our digital content and using the incredible platform that is our players uh, if we can change attitudes around um, periods in India we can make a massive uh, difference through this tournament 
we could talk about cricket and, and the business of cricket for, uh, for, for hours and, and hours. I just want to end this. Uh, a new innings then. If there's one, one aspect that you want to bring out from this book, one point, uh, one lesson uh, for the cricket community in general, your readership, what, what would it be? I think for me, it would be that if you truly care about the game, and you truly love the game as we do, then sport, whether it's cricket, whether it's soccer, whether it's rugby, whether it's hockey, whatever your sporting passion is, the regulation and governance of sport um, needs to be really well understood uh, and much more heavily and more effectively invested in. Because if we get that governance wrong, it doesn't matter what debates we have. The choices that we make about the calendar, the choices that we make about the formats, the choices that we make about uh, the balance of investment uh, across men, women, young fans. If those decisions are wrong uh, and continue uh, to be uh, suboptimal, then the future of the game is challenged. And I don't think enough sports fans understand that. And I don't think actually, by the way, enough people think about that question of how we are governed in everyday society. And having had this sort of reality show of coronavirus where we have a kind of 4pm press conference from our leaders, we've been drawn into the question of how we are governed. Who are these people who govern us? Are they the most effective people to govern us? in a way that is a conversation we've just never had in society. And if we can get sports fans having that conversation, um, if we can get commentators like you, Simon, really recognising the importance of that conversation and using platforms like Test Match Special to really stimulate that debate and inform that debate, that's, for me, the central message. Yeah, my, uh, my message really is, is that uh, cricket is such an innovative sport probably more so than any other sport and we cover quite a lot of the innovations and the IPL has brought in a few as well so I suppose really that this book A New Innings is almost in part a celebration of innovation because the IPL has inspired other similar tournaments it's changed the way the game is played and operated uh, and perceived Uh, and I think that my message is don't stifle innovation be fearless, uh, be adventurous, as Lalit Modi was when he set this up in the first place. And, you know, look at England's success in the World Cup, which was based on fearlessness and, uh, you know, kind of expression, self-belief. This book sort of encapsulates all that. So I would just say, you know, I, I hope cricket and sport doesn't stifle innovation allows people to be be imaginative and the world's your oyster okay well thanks to simon for his input there and hope you enjoyed that discussion as i said before join the debate by going to www.anewinnings.com and there is an option there to join the discussion and say tell us what you think and enter some quizzes and polls as well about the future of the game and talking of the future of the game don't forget saturday morning the Village Cup Final, the Cricketer Village Cup Final between Redbourne, who entered the competition for the first time this year, actually, amazingly, and have got to the final, and they're playing Colwell 
of uh, Herefordshire in the final. It starts at 11am Saturday at Lords, of course, although it's behind closed doors. Thank you very much to the MCC for enabling uh, everybody to play that game. And it's going to be streamed live on both the Cricketer and also the MCC websites. So hope you enjoy that. Good luck to both teams and we'll speak to you in the middle of the week. Thanks for listening. Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.